passion, drive, and patience. What brings home the winning trophy is also what keeps your ride or die alive. eBay Motors is everything you need to maintain your vehicle and level it up to peak performance. From superchargers, roof racks, exhaust kits, LED lights, and more, whether you're into speed, power, or style, eBay Motors has you covered. With over 122 million parts for your number one ride or die, you'll always find exactly what you're looking for. And with eBay Guaranteed Fit, your part is guaranteed to fit your ride every time or your money back. Because with eBay Motors, you're burning rubber, not cash. With all the parts you need at the prices you want, it's easy to turn your car into the MVP and bring home that win. Keep your ride or die alive at ebaymotors.com. Eligible items only. Exclusions apply. Good morning, everyone. It is John Pollock and Eric Marcotte coming off of UFC 295 at Madison Square Garden. Hello, Eric. How are you? Uh, I'm doing well. Yourself? Uh, I'm I'm doing okay. That was quite the card on on Saturday night. A a main card to your liking, I'm sure, Eric. I absolutely love the pace of this main card. Uh, it was like what maybe. Twenty-five minutes. If you skip out all the downtime, I, I'm being generous. If that's twenty-five minutes, you love to see it. Yeah, this is one of those. If you missed the card, you could probably catch up on the main card in probably forty minutes tops, and still uh, catch all your cutaways of uh, Donald Trump, his family members, and a grinning Tucker Carlson, all who were in attendance uh, at Madison Square Garden on on Saturday night. But the UFC doesn't talk about politics. Remember, there's there's no politics here in the UFC unless unless it's our politics. This is an apolitical company. Uh, you can you can't argue with it. They, they said it. Why would they lie? Mm-hmm. Yeah, uh, unfortunately, no interviews with Donald Trump. They didn't ask him about any of his um uh, his many charges against him. Not none of that. Uh, but he was there to get a hero's welcome at Madison Square Garden. So we are going to get into uh, all things uh, UFC. But today marks the official 30th anniversary of UFC One. Eric, where were you on November the 12th of 1993? Um, I was five or six years away from being born, I believe. So, uh, not, not very active in my MMA consumption. What, 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 a, what range of number UFC event did you enter this world around? Oh, uh, I guess we would be around UFC 20. Would, would that add up? I'm going July of 98. July of 98 would be, that would place you. Let's, let's get as close. This was when the UFC was running only a handful of shows a year. Um, July of 1998 uh, would bring us up to uh, just in between uh, UFC 17 Redemption and UFC Brazil Ultimate Brazil. Yes, folks, back in 1998, a gap between May and October uh, without any shows. So the UFC cleared out the whole summer for your arrival uh, into this world. But uh, there you go. 30th anniversary of UFC 1, a very uh, historically significant um, show in combat sports history when uh, Art Davies and Horion Gracie had this wild idea of uh, mixing all of these disciplines together and presenting what ended up being something that didn't have any television promotion behind it and yet was a juggernaut on pay-per-view for those first number of years, but was ultimately a concept that was going to have to evolve and went into, of course, the very famous uh, dark days of the mid to late 90s and early 2000s and then exploding in 2005 onward. But we're not going to do a whole uh, UFC history lesson. Instead, we will be diving into the show, which was the UFC's seventh card at Madison Square Garden going back to November of 2016. And what did these two events have in common? Well, UFC 205 back in November of 2016, happening just days after the election of Donald Trump as the president of the United States. And here we are, seven shows later from the UFC, and there to celebrate this this historic return to Madison Square Garden was Donald Trump. Just looking, uh, Eric, at uh, the show going in. Of course, this was the card that was going to be headlined by John Jones and Stipe Miocic. And on two and a half weeks notice, Tom Aspinall got the call to fight Sergey Pavlovich for the interim heavyweight championship. And then they elevated Yuri Prohaska and Alex Pereira to the main event. Obviously, this was going to be losing, um, you know, a big marquee fight in Jones and, and Miocic. But I've got to say, like, these top two fights were, I think, excellent replacements even though I am sure there were like this was these, this was an expensive ticket to UFC 295 that I'm sure a lot of people were hoping to see John Jones. But what did you think about the uh, the mixing of the the top fights and what we ended up with? 
Yeah, they definitely lost a lot in terms of star power. I imagine those who spent an obscene amount of money were dis- very disappointed to not see John Jones and Stipe Miocic. But I can't say the fight itself was one that I was really looking forward to. Uh, John Jones and Stipe Miocic both years past their prime, in my opinion. Neither has looked incredible in their last few fights, uh, depending on how you rate John's quick finish of Ciro Gone, but... This fight between Aspinall and Pavlovich, while it certainly lacked that same amount of star power, I thought it was a far more interesting fight stylistically. And in all honesty, probably a better representation of who your top heavyweight is going to be moving forward. Because I think John Jones and Stipe Miocic, uh, I do not see them fighting anybody aside from each other in the near future. Yeah, I've got to say that I, like coming out of this fight, I almost feel like it's, Obviously, John Jones and Stipe Miocic clearly want to have this fight, but I, I wasn't all that, like, it's a fight that I understand the desire to make it, but it just feels it's happening at a time, especially in Stipe Miocic's career, that it is less enticing to me. And I think coming out of this card, I, I would argue like John Jones and Tom Aspinall sounds pretty appealing at this point, but we are going to have to go through this whole rehabilitation process for John Jones and then get the Stipe fight. And I would be, hard-pressed to imagine John Jones is going to fight twice next year. Uh, and I think John Jones has even made it clear that he's looking at the Stipe fight as perhaps his final fight as well. So uh, <laughs> it, 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 I don't even know why you need the heavyweight championship attached to that belt. Perhaps they find that some incredible hook, but uh, it, it feels I, like I'm a sure John Jones' pay-per-view points uh, have <laughs> his desire to keep this championship. Well, but you're John right. Jones, of course, yes. <laughs> Yeah, but I think very we very well could see this interim championship just be elevated to the championship after that John Jones uh Stipe Miocic fight, but uh that will be a heavyweight fight uh down the road. But we're uh, we're going to get into this card. I thought these these top two fights when you look at their records, I mean, this was certainly two fights that uh very hard to predict, especially uh Sergey Pavlovich and Tom Aspinall, but we will start with the main event for the second year in a row at Madison Square Garden, Alex uh, Pereira headlining the show challenging Yuri Prohaska for the vacant light heavyweight championship that was vacated by Jamal Hill, who was in the crowd, along with uh, about 100 fighters who were uh, brought in here to uh, Madison Square Garden. And um, this Dana White called uh, one of the greatest stare downs ever on on uh, at the ceremonial weigh-ins on Friday. And the electricity for this fight, when these two made their entrances, uh, it it just looked like these two were ready to march to their death and whoever was going to come out of this fight alive. That was the vibe that we got during these entrances. Uh, this was an intense stare down, intense entrances and kind of what you would expect between these two uh, strange human beings. They, like Hiri Prahashka and Alex Pierre are both not normal people, even for MMA standards. These, these, these are weird dudes and, and very violent fighters at that. So I think uh, personality-wise, style-wise, this is one that uh, all the hardcores were looking forward to. And you know what? I say the hardcores, but at this point, I think you can call Alex Pierre and Hira Prahashka pretty mainstream fighters. I mean, listen, this is like we, we can go over the numbers like this. The announced attendance they gave was 19,039 and a gate of uh, just over 12.4 million dollars. So, uh, they, they, they came up. You could see based on the, the way they had scaled the prices, they were aiming to break that Conor McGregor, Eddie Alvarez record of 17.7 million dollars. They came far short of that, but this is still the second largest gate uh, that the UFC has ever done at Madison Square Garden. Dana was just over the moon bragging about the fact they have the top 3 gates at Madison Square Garden and even if you might have had some uh some people that maybe like they could have refunded their tickets, it didn't seem as though this um discouraged too many people when you look at um here is Alex Pereira who now has two of the top 3 gates at Madison Square Garden, even if you want to put an asterisk next to uh, this year, where I'm sure a lot of these tickets were sold off of a different fight. Sure, there's definitely an asterisk, but like you said, at the same time, this this guy is getting huge reactions every time he steps in there. He's clearly somebody that the MMA fan base is taken to, and I feel like when you look online, you can see that this is uh, somebody who has a lot of support behind him and is probably one of the more popular fighters on the roster right now. 
So in the first round, we see uh, Pereira knocking him down with a leg kick, and he started just delivering these leg kicks that were instantly having an effect on Prohaska. He's switching stances, and uh, Yuri eventually gets a takedown near the end of the, well, I, I guess like midway through the round. And first he shoots in, and Pereira's going for a guillotine, but Prohaska's not in too much trouble, gets him to the ground, and then works from half guard, lands some big elbows, and Pereira gets to his feet at the end. and. I, I I felt that the the lasting damage of this round were as a result of the leg kick. So I gave this round to Pereira, but I did see a lot of people leaning towards Prohaska. Um, I didn't get too concerned about the debate because I was like, the odds of us having five rounds to have to go back and adjudicate who won this round are about impossible that we could imagine this one lasting 25 minutes and uh, and it would not. But how did you score the first round, Eric? Uh, I, I wrestled back and forth on this one because like yourself, I thought those leg kicks were the most damaging, uh, strikes of the round. However, I did think Prahashka did just enough to squeak it out by landing some hard elbows towards the end of the round to make the most of that ground control time. And, and he was, he probably landed the better punches throughout the round for whatever you'd like to make of that, but, uh, very close, certainly. Well, we would not need uh, the judges in this one because the second round, uh, Pereira continues with, with the leg kicks and uh, Yuri lands with a big right hand and then he's landing shots against the fence and clinches up with Pereira. And this was uh, Prohaska. Uh, certainly, it felt like uh, pulling away here. Uh, right hook lands by Prohaska and then Pereira comes back with this left hook that just drops uh, uh, Prohaska and you see him like fall back or first he's taking all these elbows to the side of the head. That's what sends him down to his back and referee Mark Goddard steps in, calls it off and Prohaska gets to his feet and he is wobbly as he's getting up. But Joe Rogan, he smells a suspicious ending and he's questioning, was that too soon? And this would become a, the, the debate afterwards, which might have been the cleanest controversy that was wrapped up by the end of the broadcast. But the official result is Alex Pereira knocking out Yuri Prohaska at four minutes, eight seconds of the second round, becomes a champion at a second weight class. And after 11 pro fights, he holds wins over four either current or ex-champions between Sean Strickland, Israel Adesanya, Jan Blahovich, and now adding Yuri Prohaska. This is among the better uh, starts to an MMA career uh, you could have of your first 11 fights, and you have four of those Ws on your resume. Uh, an absolutely insane run he's had already, a two-division champion. Uh, the second round of this fight, uh, very fun. Uh, Prohaska was doing some great stuff. I thought he was winning the round until uh, he yeah. finally got clipped. Like He was doing some serious damage whenever he would surge in with those big right hands or uh, strangely timed uppercuts. And it was really a result of him getting a bit uh, over-eager that he ended up getting clipped by Pierre because he stopped doing his <laughs> doing his very unique forms of fainting and uh, timing pair, and he just started fighting recklessly when he got caught, which, you know, he does do. He does that every fight, so it's not a surprise. But a really fun fight. Uh, the stoppage controversy was definitely... Uh, I-, I can't remember the last time I, I just went online and saw such uh, outcry from seemingly everybody at the stoppage, which... I'll tell you right now, live I thought was fine. And the immediate backtracking once Prahashka takes the mic and says, oh no, I, I was unconscious. Yeah, I, I was totally out there. Dude, dude <laughs> even after that, you had people still arguing, even after Prohaska. So afterwards, we'll go in order here. So Pereira is interviewed first, and he wants Israel Adesanya. Come to daddy, which is a t-shirt to be probably printed out by the time we're already speaking here. Uh, but then Joe Rogan, just the wet blanket here. Well, I, I think Jamal Hill's next. Uh, I don't know about uh, Israel Adesanya. And <laughs> with that, uh, Pereira just says, you know, I want to fight real soon. And I don't know if Hill's going to be back by then. Um, I can promise you, I don't think Adesanya is going to be back I- in that time period either, as we expect this guy to just bulk up to light heavyweight. Don't know if we're getting a fourth MMA fight between these two, but uh, Jamal Hill was there in the crowd and he had torn his Achilles. So that's a really significant injury to be coming back from. And he only suffered that back in the summer. So probably still has many months ahead of him, but they seem to be optimistic that this is the fight for uh, Pereira sometime in 2024. And then we go to Prohaska and he is asked about, did you think this was an early stoppage? And he said, no, I was out. 
It was a good stoppage. And dude, <laughs> I wish they cut to Mark Goddard, who probably realized, man, my mentions just got a whole lot healthier on Sunday. Because, dude, if you want a textbook example of how thankless being a MMA official at the highest level is, this was it. Like, you watch this and... Like these are snap decisions in the heat of a moment where you are just trying your best to allow a fighter to go as far as he can without crossing a line. And in this one, I listen, I think Mark Goddard did an excellent job here. Like, dude, he got to his feet and he was, he was out of it. And you could certainly like people in the moment can make their arguments back and forth. Mark Goddard's got to make that second, that snap decision in the moment. And I think he made the right call here. Uh, he 100% he did. When the fighter himself comes out and says, yes, I, I was, was out. out, he made the right call. But I've seen some of the most, uh, absurd takes in relation to this stoppage. Well, I, I, I shouldn't just be talking about random comments from people I've never heard of before. But I think my favorite one was somebody who rationalized that y- you cannot trust, uh, what a rock fighter says about a good or bad stoppage. I mean, if, <laughs> <laughs> That's the concussion talking. Yeah, he's he, fine. He he was knocked out. You can't trust him. <laughs> but uh no, I thought it was a really good stoppage, so credit to Mark Goddard. Yeah, and I mean this is a division, let's be honest. Uh Yuri Prohaska is going to fight for this championship uh again in his career, if not many more times in, in his career. I mean, this is just not an an ultra deep division when you're looking at uh Jamal Hill, Magomed Ankalaev, and whatever other middleweights want to audition at 205 pounds down the road. I mean, there are uh Yuri Prohaska to me does not have the longest path ahead of him back to a title fight. And I think people would be interested to see a rematch between these two. Give Prohaska one more fight and he could be back in the championship picture. Yeah, this is a miserable division. There's not a lot of exciting stuff going on in it. Uh, Magomed Ankalaev seems to be on this streak of just strange finishes that's keeping him from getting back in the title conversation. Uh, like you, Jamal Hill's injured. Uh, you have Jan Blahovich coming up against Alexander Rakic, which I, I suppose the winner of that could get a title shot, even yeah, though you're right. That, that fight is in there too. But Mm-hmm. Uh, nothing is that interesting. If they literally just said, "Hey, we're we're just gonna do Alex Pereira versus Yuri Prohaska two in six months," I'd be like, "All right, that sounds like fun." We're doing a best of five series, folks. Yeah. Yeah, that sounds amazing. That sounds far better than any of the other options. So uh, I'm down. Do you expect to ever see Israel Adesanya go back at to try his hand again at 205 pounds, or was the the display against Jan Blahovich a reality check that this is? Just a too big of a weight class jump for him. Um, I, I wouldn't be surprised if he steps up to challenge Alex Pierre. In all honesty, it's not as though uh, Alex is going to wrestle with him. He, it's going to be a striking match, which he's done four times with the guy already. Uh, he knocked him out in the last one, so I can see there being confidence there. It wouldn't shock me if that does end up from some strange result and being the next fight for that light heavyweight championship. Next up is the interim heavyweight championship fight as uh, Tom Aspinall taking this fight on two and a half weeks notice, taking on Sergei Pavlovich. Uh, the records of these two, it like the question going into this was how would these fighters fare if their stamina was tested? And we didn't get an answer to that, but this was one where, I mean, you look at the, the, the amount of uh, strikes per minute that these two land. Uh, this one was promising to be uh, probably a short affair. And it did going all of uh, 69 seconds, but in those 69 seconds, we did see Tom Aspinall have to weather um, a big shot from Pavlovich after absorbing a leg kick. And Aspinall comes back and lands this overhand right and then follows it up with this right hand to the temple that uh, sent Pavlovich to Long Island and finishes him with three hammer fists as uh, Dan Mergliata stops the fight a minute nine of the first round and Aspinall was in tears after this decision is read, gave a motivational speech about taking fights on short notice and says he was never as scared of someone as he was of Sergei Pavlovich. And uh, if you look at this guy's highlight reel, you can understand that that fear may have been warranted. But Tom Aspinall uh, becomes your interim heavyweight champion. And I would say a a champion that people will take uh, very seriously, not just like a placeholder either. I I would love to see Tom Aspinall and John Jones uh, ahead of Stipe Miocic for sure. 
Uh, definitely, definitely. Uh, that'd be a far more interesting fight. Uh, as I said earlier, I don't think we will ever, under any circumstance, see it. But uh, th- this is a very legitimate interim championship. It's a case these, where... These two feel like the future of... Like, this feels... Yeah. As though this could be like a Cain Velasquez Jr. Dos Santos series for this generation of heavyweights. Like, these two could easily meet several more times in their careers. They're, they're both uh, th- 31 and 30, respectively. Um, you know, at heavyweight, they could easily um, fight two or three more times. Definitely, definitely. It feels like this is one that probably will be revisited down the road. Uh, Pavlich is a scary striker. If, if you told me ahead of the, f- the fight that one of them won by knockout in a minute, I probably would have guessed that Sergey got his arm raised in the end, but he, he does fight like a madman. He lives, he leaves his chin out there and he, he usually gets tagged every fight. This time Aspinall did put him away quickly. He's a heavy hitter himself, but, uh, it, it won't be a long road back to title contention for him. Uh, as far as fights coming out of this, y- you have a few names that spring to mind. Uh, Cyril Gaon, of course, still in the conversation. Um, Curtis Blades, who holds a somewhat odd stoppage victory over Aspinall as a result of that knee injury. Between like the idea of a of a Cyril Gaon challenge for Tom Aspinall, or uh, and or I should say a, a Benoit Saint Denis, like they certainly could put together a big card for for France if they were going there, and that is a an easy one too that you could put on top of that. And I think they would have uh, no problem selling out the, uh, the, the main arena there in, in Paris that they've gone to. Oh, definitely. Uh, I mean, the, uh, what they've done two cards there at this point, both headlined by gone. And he has felt Th- like has done well there. Like, yeah, it's, yeah. it's a hotbed over there. It is. And they have, they might have the best crowd in all of MMA. I, I think I will give that to them. Whenever they go to France, these crowds are absolutely insane. So I, I could definitely see them doing that. Even though Tom Aspinall came in, this was the heaviest he had weighed for a UFC fight at uh, just under 262 pounds, but uh, none of his speed was compromised. Like he, in the 69 seconds we had to judge here, he's a very fast heavyweight for, for this size. And with Aspinall, I guess if you came in with, with questions about him, they're probably still there just because we have not got to see him go um the distance in a fight or even, you know, routinely getting out of the first round. But I think that also adds a lot of intrigue for future fights uh, as well. Do you look at Tom Aspinall as someone, do you still have questions about uh, Tom Aspinall or do you feel that you see this guy as potentially having a, a lengthy run at heavyweight? Um, yeah, I mean, I think we've seen enough of him at this point that a lot of questions have been answered. He's a very dangerous fighter in all areas. He's been tested against the top guys in the division, and he's largely came out victorious uh, against some dangerous opponents, such as tonight. The only question that remains, I suppose, would be his cardio, but it's heavyweight. All these guys have horrible cardio, so who cares if he has bad cardio? Well, who's he going to fight with great cardio? Uh, Stipe Miocic? He's retiring. Uh, there's nobody, so it, I don't Tom even- we're, we're going to Mexico City, and you are going to headline. We're going to find out how how you fare. Um, so yeah, that's that's where you look at. I mean, for for Aspinall, like you mentioned, Cyril gone. I like that fight. There's the rematch with Curtis Blades, where he blew his knee out 15 seconds in uh, as well. But I mean, this is a. Uh, I, I know that you're just jonesing for uh, Jalton Almeida to test his his stamina over five rounds. Uh, in all honesty, I would not be opposed to seeing that fight. I know his last fight against Derek Lewis was beyond dull, but uh, he has looked invincible since he made his UFC debut. So if they if they said they were going that direction, I would be down. This post wrestling podcast is brought to you by NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast. Financial literacy can be daunting, but it's one of the most valuable things you can equip yourself with. On NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast, their trusted financial journalists offer easily digestible, conversational discussions on topics like balancing your portfolio. If you think an ETF is one of Cena's five moves of doom, this show might be for you. Planning for your tax bills this April, so you don't have to worry about a visit from Erwin R. Scheister. And putting away more money for retirement, because unlike most wrestlers at the end of their careers, most of us should only plan on retiring once. Listen to NerdWallet's Smart Money Podcast on your favorite podcast app. Future you will thank you. Next up, we are going to the women's strawweight division, and it was Jessica Andrade taking on the minus 230 favorite, Mackenzie Dern. I, th- I thought these were very favorable odds to uh, to Mackenzie Dern. I saw this being a much closer fight. This one felt like we were just looking at 
at recent um, performances by Jessica Andrade, who had lost three in a row, 0-2 since returning to 115 pounds. Somewhat concerning when you see someone bouncing around to so many weight classes that Andrade has had. But Mackenzie Dern, um, boy, if if you didn't know that uh, uh, Ruka has uh, closed down and she didn't have Jason Perillo, these this broadcast team made you remember that fact. The, the point that Dean Thomas, when asked for his thoughts on Mackenzie's stand-up, whoever got rid of Jason Perillo should be fired. <laughs> I mean, <laughs> they just... I mean, listen, Mackenzie Dern, I, I thought in one sense, the, the announcers, like they were spot on in terms of her defensive, uh, holes. Like her chin was just out there and they pretty much forecasted what happened here. But I mean, to the other side of the coin, Dern was landing quite, uh, quite favorably in the, in this first round. Like it was a very, uh, reckless style that she had, but was certainly landing on Andrage. But that said, um, we, we got the, uh, the trademark headlock takeover um, that, that we, we don't see too often here uh, by, by Dern, uh, who loses control with this. And then Dern just charges at her and gets clipped in the first uh, with her chin hanging out. And Andrade starts landing leg kicks and drops her with a right hand and lands hammer fist at the end. So I had Dern winning this round up until about the final 15 seconds. And Andrade, I thought, uh, stole this round uh, at, at the end. It was oh, close, wow. but... I, I thought Andrade won at the end. I was actually on a very different page than you. I, I didn't think the round was very close. I, I thought it was pretty one-sided for Andrade. I thought the leg kicks were uh, tearing Dern apart, and whenever they did exchange, I thought Andrade was landing with uh, significantly more power. Uh, I, I didn't think Dern looked uh, fantastic on the feet. What, what Dern does have going for her is she genuinely hits quite hard for that division. So whenever she gets into these wild exchanges in the pocket, when she does find her target, she makes an impact. But I thought she was having trouble creating her own offense. Well, in the second round, uh, Andrade continues with the leg kicks and this combination lands on her and they get into an exchange and Andrade lands with this wild left hand that drops Dern and she just lets her get up and Andrade is teeing off on her. Dern does get in a big shot, but then she is dropped again and Andrade thinks it's over. But instead, Dern gets up, they continue, drops her for the fourth <laughs> time in the fight, and now Keith Peterson is telling him, telling Mackenzie, you've had enough, okay? Um, reconcile with Jason Perillo, whatever's going on, this fight is over, and Jessica Andrade wins by TKO at 315 of the second, and Jessica Andrade becomes the first female in the UFC to achieve four knockdowns in one fight. Um, there's probably a reason why these records aren't set to up <laughs> because usually once you're at about three knockdowns in a fight that doesn't even get out of the second, it's it's time to uh, wave things off. And Jessica Andrade uh, gets back into the win column, uh, her first since coming back to 115 pounds. I would say this was a pretty big setback for Mackenzie Dern, who um, just defensively, I, I thought she she really regressed in, in this fight. And maybe at at this stage, we've seen enough fights out of Mackenzie Dern that there's a ceiling for her. And I don't know if she's going to cross that threshold into becoming a contender at strawweight. I would agree with you. Um, she's certainly had her moments. She's beaten ranked fighters like Angela Hill or Tisha Torres. But when she's challenged herself against the top contenders of the division, she's fallen short often in, you know, decisive fashion. Her, her striking just isn't quite fair. Uh, like I said, she hits hard. So that's something she always has going for her. But against someone like Jessica Andrade, who, uh, does have better striking fundamentals and hits a lot harder. Well, she got dropped four times and finished in like, uh, eight and a half minutes. It, it was, it was a rough perfor- performance from Dern. Uh, she didn't even, she didn't try to wrestle that much, honestly. She nearly had Andrade down in the first. And I don't even remember her going for another takedown throughout the fight. It was, um, uh, just just a poor game plan, poor performance, and uh, a much better outing from Jessica Andrade than we've seen this year. Yeah, so Andrade came in ranked fifth in the division. Dern was seventh. So we will see if Andrade uh, moves up at all. If she has another uh, title fight down the road in her career, it's, it, it's, it's hard to imagine. I think with Jessica Andrade, I think this was uh, – she just outmatched her opponent. And, I mean, Andrade has her own, I think, liabilities, uh, but – we will see. I, I don't know if we see her in a uh, championship picture, but I mean, she she has a style that she can also leapfrog a lot of fighters. It's a very fan friendly style that um, this division sometimes is uh, looking for. 
She's a lot of fun. In fact, I would go on the record to say she's probably the most entertaining fighter in, in the history of women's MMA, which is quite a, a big statement when you consider all the divisions that that uh, encompasses. But uh, she's she's really struggled this year. It's been a rough year for Jessica and Josh, as they were not shying away from saying on the No, broadcast. not at all. Even, was, so even... Go the ahead. fact that both these women have been going through divorces that sound like they have been very financially draining. So Joe Rogan, of course Joe Rogan, brings this up. Just casual, like, uh, re- reaction during the post-fight interview. Hopefully you get a bonus, uh, to pay off all of those d- divorce bills. And <laughs> Jessica Draj is like, huh, thanks. I appreciate that on, on a live pay-per-view here that, uh, thousands are watching. I appreciate that comment here. Uh, so, um, yeah. And then Joe Rogan, um, followed up asking, um, you're not going to be opting out of the, uh, the antitrust suit, I assume, because you would, you are automatically, uh, part of the classification of fighters that are part of this, uh, antitrust suit. And if there is a ruling in their favor, there are treble damages that you would re- reap the rewards from. I was absolutely shocked when he brought that up, but good on him. Yeah, yeah. And then they cut to uh, Donald Trump for his thoughts on the antitrust case as well. So we move on from uh, the women's strawweight division. And uh, next up, Benoit Saint-Denis taking on Matt Fravola. And this was a uh, was not a great return to Madison Square Garden for Matt Fravola. This one went a minute thirty one. This again a very quick main card. So Saint Denis uh, came. He was he was underneath, got up, back to his feet, and out of the clinch, Fravola is circling away, and boom, head kick by uh, by uh, Saint Denis knocks down Fravola, and he just finishes him with strikes in a minute thirty one of the first round. And uh, Saint Denis, who they made sure to uh, me- mention many times. Only got into MMA in 2017. He has now won uh, five in a row, all stoppage wins. Uh, this after uh, Ismail Bonfim in July, Tiago Moises back in September. And his only loss in MMA came when he was fighting at welterweight. So um, this dude, I mean, he gets on the mic and he just... I want to fight, uh, I want to fight Dustin Poirier. I want to fight Justin <laughs> Gaethje. I want Matush Gamrot. Uh, I want to fight for the BMF title. I want to fight for the lightweight title. I mean, this dude is, uh, this, let's put it in perspective. He is unranked as of uh, this fight. <laughs> and he's just calling his shots here. They're cutting away to Justin Gaethje and Poirier in the crowd. It, even like Rogan and Cormier are like, I think he's like overshooting <laughs> his, uh, his viability for his next fight, but, uh, Man, the the guy wants big fights, and he was certainly one of the the talking points coming out of this card, and was probably seen by a lot of people. It was a spectacular knockout, and he's on a streak of spectacular finishes now. I remember watching his UFC debut against Zaleski dos Santos, who was a, a very skilled fighter, and that fight was one of the most one sided beatdowns I've ever seen. We're talking a ten seven round awarded for Zaleski dos Santos, and I didn't really make much of uh, Benoit Saint Denis at the time, but since then he has certainly won me over. And guess what? He's not getting any of those fights he called for. None of that's happening. <laughs> but he is, he's making a name for himself, and I could see him getting a ranked fighter in his next one. I love that the the gap is like fighting for the championship or just being ranked after this fight. Like somewhere in between that is uh <laughs> what we're hoping to see from this guy uh coming out of this. But I mean, Dana White was very high on this guy. Saying, Listen, we could go to France and headline a card with this guy, and he's probably not wrong. Like you no, probably yeah. could be, for, forget like Cyril Gaon and Tom Aspinall on top. You could probably easily do a fight night with with this guy at, at this point. Like it was this is a great quick win for him, but one that uh certainly should propel him to at least um a, a nice position in his next card maybe uh maybe apex headliner treatment uh, the dream the dream of every fighter to fight in front of uh, 20 people unless mark zuckerberg and, and that fight will be against islam makachev right um may, maybe it'll be against his doppelganger uh of some sort next diego lopez pat sabatini Another fight that went 90 seconds. So, uh, Diego Lopez, uh, first off, Sabatini, uh, immediately lands a, a one-two combination, but Lopez, uh, scrambles and he rocks Sabatini with this right hand right near the ear. And dude, Sabatini looks like he is out on his feet and, uh, Lopez makes it easy for Keith Peterson, dropping him down and then hammer fisting him until Keith Peterson is, uh, putting in his uh his no nonsense moniker and had enough nonsense. It was a minute 30 knockout victory for Diego Lopez who improves to 23 and 6 
Uh, 28 years old, third fight in the UFC, or fourth fight in the UFC, I should say, after his uh, sub win over Gavin Tucker back in August. It hasn't been a long run, so there's still, I, I don't know how much we can make of Diego Lopez at this point, but he's certainly a dangerous fighter, a quick submission win in his last fight and then a knockout here. Uh, he, he seemed popular with the crowd. Uh, people are, know who he is at this point, so I, I think we'll continue to see him in a notable role going forward, but what his ceiling is, it's still far too early to say, in my opinion. So this was this was one of the more entertaining main cards. I mean, if you like quick finishes, this is what this uh this main card uh produced. It was very entertaining to watch and I mean, do you do you see this card doing well uh pay-per-view wise or do you think the loss of John Jones uh significantly hurt this show? Um I I would say the loss of John Jones and Stipe Miocic significantly hurt the show in terms of buy rate. I think that's a fight that would really capture that casual audience when I mean all you have to do is advertise oh the greatest light heavyweight of all time and the greatest heavyweight mm-hmm. of all time. It, it sells itself. Uh, with that being said, I still saw a lot of interest in this card. I think it will do well comparatively to the other pay-per-views this year. So we will go into the uh, the televised prelims, and I guess we, we should mention, um, as we have already, but at the end of the televised prelims, I mean, we just had the most <laughs> comical entrance. It was like, um, it was like w- watching like the, the the Expendables, but the <laughs> the Republican National Convention version, where Donald Trump leads out. They're almost like in a V shape coming into the arena. Here's Donald Trump flanked by Dana White. A grinning Tucker Carlson, who was inaccurately identified as a television personality. I mean, he is not technically a television personality anymore. Uh, Donald Trump Jr. is in the back. And then, of course, Kid Rock. I mean, if you could paint a picture for somebody that has never watched MMA, but has their illusions of what is the UFC culture, this would be the drawing. Like, the dogs playing poker painting, that's what this was the UFC equivalent of. Oh, 100%. Coming out to a wild ovation from the crowd here. You know, there was a time where I would have been absolutely disgusted by this, but when I saw these guys walk out, I just bursted out laughing because this was so comical. Seeing Donald Trump, Dana White, Tucker Carlson and Kid Rock uh, walking out like they're they're the Avengers or something. Dana has the biggest grin on his face. This was absolutely ridiculous. And there he was taking photos with, uh, with fighters. He saw like a dude, Michael Chandler couldn't have been happier to meet this guy. Um, so there, there you have it, Donald Trump, but they're not political in the UFC folks. This no, is not where at all. You can tune in and you don't have to think about, uh, politics or a- any of that stuff. So let's go through the, uh, the, the televised, uh, prelims and we'll, we'll go, uh, in descending order here. Steve Urseg against Alessandro Costa. Uh, they went, they went the distance here. Steve Urseg, uh, a dead ringer for Steve Carell had he gone the MMA route. Uh, I see it. I see it. Okay. Ursig won the uh, the first and third rounds, I, I felt. Uh, Costa, very aggressive. And Ursig was just patient with his leg kicks in the first. And then uh, lands his big right hand and had this beautiful transition to mount and was trying for the choke. Couldn't get it. Uh, second round, Costa just threw the game plan out and just went hunting for Ursig's chin, and this included a flying knee, landing a, a lot of big shots, got a body lock takedown, and a big combination at, at the end. So a round apiece going into the third, and uh, this third round, dude, literally, it was anyone's fight up until, like, pretty much the the horn at the end. Like, Ursig just clinched him against the fence and controlled him, but I just thought neither guy made a super compelling argument. I thought, Ursig, you... We'd have to give the round, but this was both guys I didn't feel were aggressive enough because I think if Costa had just landed one big shot in this final 30 seconds, it might have taken the fight his way. Uh, I agree. The third round was very pedestrian. Little happened. A lot of it was spent wrestling against the cage. Ursig was a sizable favorite going into this one, but I can't say I was overly impressed by his performance. With, with that being said, still got his arm raised in the end, so wins a win. Tabitha Ricci against Lupi Godinez. Uh, Godinez has fought, uh, already, uh, this was her first, fourth fight of the year with wins against Cynthia Calvillo, Emily Ducote, and Elise Reed by submission back in September, uh, taking on, uh, Tabitha Ricci, whose nickname is Baby Shark. Are you familiar with Baby Shark, Eric? I, I, I am not. 
consider yourself lucky. Uh, that would be my, <laughs> my advice as a father. Uh, Lupe Godinez here. Um, I, I thought she won all three rounds here. I um, I did not have a 30, 27 card for Tabitha Ricci <laughs> as a br- judge Brian oh, Minor man. managed to have. Um, what, just the most ludicrous scorecard on this insanity. Show. Yeah. Absolute insanity. Um, Godinez just very good measured striking, uh, dropped her with a right hand in, in the first round. Uh, Richie got in like uh, a counter, but Godinez just responds with a left hook at the end of the round into the second. It's Godinez, uh, very good timing here using, utilizing her jab through a high kick, although it was uh, blocked. And then they had this uh, clash of heads that knocks Godinez off balance. And Richie had some success, uh, when Godinez, uh, with her in the, uh, the final minute. And then in the third, it's, Godinez stopping the takedowns and Godinez landed with a left hook and continued just her timing, just a better striker here for, for three rounds. Um, the judges had it 29, 28 twice for Godinez. I could see maybe the second they, they went with, uh, Ricci and, uh, yes, the, the, the scorecard that I am sure led to, uh, Bruce Buffer needing several minutes before he read the scorecard to go over it and make sure that this judge Brian Miner did not confuse which fighter was which as he read a 30-27 card for Tabitha Ricci, which is impossible to justify. Uh, uh, ludicrous. Uh, I had it 30-27 to 27 for Godinez. I, I agree you can totally justify giving Ricci the, the second round. And you know what? Maybe if you really wanted to, I would disagree heavily, but maybe you could argue the first round for the knockdown at the end. The third round, I don't see any case whatsoever. It's impossible. A terrible scorecard. One of the worst of the entire year. Matouche Rambetsky versus Roosevelt Roberts. Roberts took this fight on five days notice and probably contributed to his uh, inability to make weight. He was uh, two pounds over the lightweight limit. Um, but uh, Matouche Rambetsky, he only needed the first round as he was able to uh, just... Uh, he gets a pretty easy takedown and moves to side control and then back to their feet. Um, Roberts, uh, gets the right arm and Roberts tries to posture up and it's Ram- Rambetsky from his back taking the arm. And as, and as Roberts goes down, uh, submits here was just in a bad position and Rambetsky gets the submission at 308 of the first round and moves to 19 and one. And he was the biggest favorite on this card, a minus 750 coming into this card. Wow, that's uh I didn't know he was that big of a favorite going in. Uh, not that Roosevelt Roberts is a, is a killer or anything, but he's certainly an experienced opponent, but I, I suppose the odds uh, the fight played out as the odds would suggest. So, good on them. Yeah, Roberts he, he had left the UFC and then he was on the last season of Tough. Um I will take their word for it that he was on the last season <laughs> yeah, of the Ultimate sure. Fighter. I mean, it's like they, they uh, could say whatever they want about the if, last season of the Ultimate Fighter. Maybe Conor McGregor versus Michael Chandler already happened. That was the finale of the show. <laughs> <I'm>, nobody knows <laughs> if a tree falls in the forest and no one is around. Did that Ultimate Fighter season really happen? Uh, Nazim Sadikov versus Vyacheslav Borshov in the uh, lightweight division. This one also going three rounds, and this ended up getting a fight of the night, and I did not disagree with it. I mean, if, if you're going with a, a fight that lasted the distance, I mean, not too many contenders on this card, but uh, uh, Borshev in the first round using plenty of leg kicks with a, with a combination going to the body as well. Uh, Sadikov would also land to the body. And into the second we go, uh, Borshov with a high kick. Great combination here. And then he's like spinning Sadikov when he would land with these leg kicks. Out of nowhere, Sadikov lands with a left hand and a head kick drops Borshov, gets on top, and he is trying to finish him. Opens up Borshov with this elbow and he is leaking blood all over the canvas. And back to their feet they go. Borshov is wobbling on his feet. He was in a bad way here. Uh, but it looked as though, um, uh, Borshov, he was, he was able to last, but he got mounted near the end. A 10-8 round. Uh, was this a 10-8 round for you, Eric? Uh, round two we're talking about? I round did two. score round two a 10-8, yes. Most people did. Do you know one judge who did not score it a 10-8? Oh, I wonder who it possibly could have been. <laughs> Brian Miner. He had a great night. As, as I talked earlier, defending like how tough it is to be a, a, a referee. I understand judging is not simple, but, um, Brian Miner, John Anik certainly, he does not bite his tongue anymore. He was the first no, one. He doesn't. When that 3027 card was read for Ricci, he made it clear 
what the guy's name was and minor, the only judge not to give a 10 eight to Sadikov in the second round. So John Anik, I mean, where's the bus? Because I've got a body to throw under it. <laughs> Third round, uh, Borshov comes back from the dead and, uh, he wins this round. Uh, both men attacking the body. There's a head kick by Borshov. Sadikov, uh, gets the takedown, but back to their feet. Borshov, the pressure, uh, here landing the big shots and, uh, Sadikov does get a takedown in the closing seconds. I thought that was, a uh, too little for Sadikov. I scored this one a draw, 28-28, and so did two of the judges. So we got a majority draw at the end of the contest. Uh, I had it exactly the same as you, a draw. And this probably was the fight of the night. There were, there were a couple contenders in here. It was a pretty fun night, but uh, it was an entertaining scrap. It was, a, it was a very good fight. I don't know if enough that the, this would warrant a, a rematch, but yeah, a, a good fight for both guys. And they get uh, an additional 50 grand for the uh, fight of the night. And then the early prelims, Jared Gordon, Mark O. Madsen. They really love to emphasize the O. Uh, it's like his his calling card, really. Mark Madsen, that, who was that? Some guy who played for the Lakers? Who cares? Mark O. Madsen. Now you know exactly who that is. Mark O. Madsen. Um, so there are uh, uppercuts and knees to the body by Madsen. He was actually doing really good in this first round with his dirty boxing and like lighting up Gordon. But then Gordon... Puts Madsen against the fence. Boom. Uppercut. Left elbow. Drops Madsen with a right hand and four big follow-up shots. And Jared Gordon gets the TKO win in 442 of the first round and gave a passionate speech afterwards of his uh, grandfather boxing in this arena and that he used to shoot up heroin in Penn Station. And now he's winning fights in Madison Square Garden. Um, always great stories from Jared Gordon. Uh, I have to admit, I, after watching Mark, Ma- Mark O. Madsen, my apologies, come out so many times and just have the most, uh, boring fights imaginable that he was starting to lose towards the end. It was great to see him come out here fighting aggressively, finding success on the feet. And uh, I felt, I felt a bit sad for him when, uh, all of this, uh, changing of his game plan resulted in him just being knocked out in a couple minutes yeah i mean things were going well until they weren't for uh for mark o madsen only his second career loss uh coming here on uh ufc 295 john castaneda against kyung ho kong at a catch weight of 138 pounds um they're explaining to joe rogan who like i i don't know how how much uh Note-taking Joe Rogan is doing in the lead-up to this, but they explain that uh, John Castaneda's uh, doctor requested or gave the recommendation that it be a catchweight fight, that he can't make the weight. And Rogan, I mean, just anything that sounds different, it's like met with suspicion. Like, what's a doctor arguing <laughs> for a catchweight over? And Anik is like, well, he was suffering from an infection, and Rogan's immediately like, oh. Okay. I, it was like, it passed my, my litmus test of, of uh, skepticism here. So then he, uh, he moved on from that after just, you know, like, l- let's just damage this doctor's reputation here on the pay-per-view. Anyway, uh, Castaneda's landing with, uh, with leg kicks in the first and just circling around, working, uh, Kong from the outside. And j- j- Kong just seemed as though he just never had his timing and was just trying to figure this guy out and just uh, lots of problems with Castaneda continued in the second where Castaneda took him down, put him against the fence, and then landed multiple shots at the end of the round. The third continues with uh, calf kicks to the left leg and just pulling away, takes him down against the fence and got another takedown in the last minute. I had it 30-27 for Castaneda. All three judges had it 30-27. Uh, did you score it 30-27 for uh, Kyung Ho Kong? Uh, I didn't. Uh, in oh. fact, I was just shocked to see that Kong was still in in the UFC. To be honest with you, this guy's been around forever. I <laughs> I, I was doubly surprised to check his record and like, oh wow, he's he's won five of his last six fights. He's on a hell of a run. <laughs> The quietest run in the UFC. Kyung Ho Kong, who's quietly trying to open up that 138-pound weight class. He's, he's only lost, like, three fights in the last 10 years. <laughs> What's going on here? <laughs> it's pretty impressive when you look at this. 36 years old, uh, Kyung Ho Kong. So there you go. Uh, John Castaneda, the 138-pound champion in the UFC, coming out of this card. Joshua Van against Kevin Borjas. Uh, Van is only 22 years of age. Younger than you, Eric. That is correct. Wow. Uh, he 
made his debut beating uh, Zhalgis Zumagulov back in June with a split decision win and has won his last six fights, uh, five, fi- five fights he took uh, in 2022. Uh, Borjas came off the Contender Series in August, so this was his UFC debut. Uh, Boros in the first round ends up a uh, dropping van with a one, two combination and enough here that, uh, he won the first round. Second van is much more aggressive going to the body and frequently, uh, landing body shots here to set up a left hand to the chin and a left hook connects by Borjas. A few big shots by Borjas at the end of the second round. And then in the third, it's van continuing to attack the body, got this great takedown, tried for a heel hook, but lost that and continues mixing to the to the body and chin, ups the volume near the end, and then takes him down into side control. And Borjas reversed and took his back right near the end of the fight. A great transition by Borjas. And I had this 29-28 for Joshua Van, but I would I thought this was a great, great fight on the uh, the early prelims. Agreed. I, I had the same scorecard as yourself, and I thought this was another one of the uh, contenders for Fight of the Nights. Uh, some great uh, body work throughout this bout from Joshua Van. They mentioned that Van landed 45 significant body shots coming just short of the record of 51. Oh, so well, my favorite, something. my favorite part was throughout the broadcast, the commentators were losing their mind because they, yeah, they he, said the he got the record. He, throughout the entire third round, they can't stop going on about him chasing the record and finally getting it only for John Anik to like quietly correct, uh, just a correction. He did not get the record. <laughs> just a correction. He wasn't even all that close to the record. I mean, he was <laughs> off by six. You know what I mean? It's not like, okay, there was one shot that didn't, uh, that didn't quite land, uh, that we were off on. No, he was a clear second. There you go. Joshua Van, he's 22, plenty of chances in his career to uh, attack that record in the future. And then the opening fight, it was a Dennis Bazooka versus Jamal Emmers. And this was a sign of things to come on this card going all of 49 seconds. Emmers dropped him with a straight right and just finished him with hammer fists in the 49 seconds of analysis. I can give you, he showed some great movement and timing and just, uh, found his distance like this was a short fight but you could see jamal emmer's just a a superior uh fighter here just in terms of uh just his his awareness in in the cage and getting out of the way of any any trouble from bazooka uh but he called for the performance of the night bonus and uh the man did miss weight so i mean he was not going to be getting the performance of the night bonus but hey you can still call for it i guess uh no it's been it's been a pretty uninspiring run for him in the UFC thus far this was kind of his big moment to this point this uh very impressive quick knockout that the weight miss of course took away from it but it was it was a sign of things to come throughout this card because uh not many car uh, not many fights made it outside of that opening round so as we mentioned afterwards, they gave the fight of the night to Nazim Sadikov and Vyacheslav Borshov for uh, fifty thousand dollars each and then. Dana White giving all main card winners $50,000 bonuses. And I mean, the reaction to this was like, man, Dana, you're feeling really generous. I'm like, guys, we heard like literally in the same like sentence, he mentioned a 12 plus million dollar gate, the second largest in the history of <laughs> Madison Square Garden. And what qualifies as generous is throwing an extra 150K. Uh, at, at the fighters. I mean, the, the, the level to, that is like, oh my God, the UFC is just opening up the purse strings tonight. It's exceedingly low. Oh, wow, John. You're, you're such a, such a hater. First, you, you, uh, bring up the antitrust suit and, and now you question the integrity of Dana White. Uh, shame on you. I just want to ask Dana White in regards to his performance of the night bonuses, if inflation means anything. How long have these been $50,000 for? <laughs> Uh, like before you were born, uh, they were 25k for a while, weren't they? Uh, there was that, there was that one card where they're like, Hey, everything's bigger in Texas. So we're going 75k. And, and they immediately went back the, like the next card. Did you, did you hear the guy that he went off at, at the press conference for having the temerity to ask about the idea of co-promotion and putting together like the biggest fight you could put together in MMA with John Jones and Francis Ngannou? Uh, yes, I did. What, what a what a spiteful, ignorant question. The dumbest question Dana White has ever heard. Why? Why would I do that? Why would I put together um, the biggest fight possible? Like, why? Why would I do that? Like, um, no, of course not. So that was UFC 295. I thought overall it was an excellent card. Um, 
you know, one that I, I don't know how well this will do on pay-per-view, but I've got to say, I was, I was pretty excited for the show. The, the top two fights I thought were like coin flip fights to try and predict. And I was, I personally found those two fights to be, I, I, I would have taken those two over Jones and Miochik. Like that one just, it did not really move me all that much. And I'm not crazy about the fact we're going to wait probably until next summer that you would think of to see that fight between those two. Uh, I'm with you. Uh, that wasn't a fight that interests me. It won't interest me in a year from now after another year of ina- inactivity when, like, at that point, they will have a combined, like, two fights in the last four years. <laughs> Miocic got knocked out in that one of his. It's just not interesting to me. And I think this is a good sign for the division moving forward. Uh, this was a really fun card. A lot of quick finishes. You you pretty much got exactly what you would expect from every single fight. So uh, no complaints here. So the UFC will go from uh, 19000 plus and a $12 million gate to the Apex next Saturday as they return to their, their haunt with uh, Paul Craig taking on Brandon Allen in the, in the main event. The following weekend, they are at the Moody Center in Austin, Texas. Benil Dariush against Armand Sarukian, which is a, a very good main event. Dan Hooker against Bobby Green. Rob Font against Devison Figueredo. Sean Brady against Kelvin Gastelum. This is a, this is a very good fight night card. Oh yeah, that card, the Texas card is uh, stacked. In contrast to the fight night card the week prior that uh it looks atrocious. I'm not interested. What are you in talking that. about? We not interested Michael Morales in a single fight second uh, from the top. No, a brutal card. Paul Craig, uh, bless Paul Craig. He, he should never be main eventing cards. Uh, but this this Texas one, uh, it's incredible. Like five fights down that can main event an Apex card. This is the best fight night they've put out in a very long time. Are you going to give us a breakdown of Peyton Talbot versus Nick Aguirre on the main card next weekend? <laughs> I'm sorry, who? Am I making up names or is that a real fight? That's the question, Eric. Um, I, I honestly couldn't tell you. No, people can look that one up. Um, a card that, that is worth your time is the next time we will be here uh, for UFC 296 that is happening, their last pay-per-view of the year, December 16th at the T-Mobile Arena. Among the fights on the card, Leon Edwards defending the welterweight championship against Colby Covington. Uh, Colby Covington is uh, coming off a loss outside of a Miami restaurant uh, to earn this title fight. Alexandra Pantoja against Brandon Royval for the flyweight title. Tony Ferguson against Patty Pimblett. Uh, that's, it sounds depressing. Not out of the realm that Tony Ferguson could win this fight. No, it's entirely possible that he could win, but it's also entirely possible that he could lose, which is just miserable. Um, and then the main card rounds out, like these fights are excellent. Shavkat Rachmanov against Steven Thompson, a dude. I'm really glad they're, they're making this fight. Um, this is really going to be, um, a test for Steven Thompson, I think, against uh, Shavkat Rachmanov. But I, I love this fight. I think that's a great, great test for Rachmanov. And listen, if Steven Thompson can beat Shavkat Rachmanov, then I don't care. 40 years old, like, he, he should be in in a title situation. Uh, agreed completely. Uh, he's definitely slowing down at this point of his career. You can see it in his defensive wrestling and his general movements. But he's also shown the ability to outstrike the division's best strikers to this point. In recent fights, he's pretty easily handled Kevin Holland, Jeff Neal, uh, Vicente Luque. Not, none of them had that much to offer him on the feet. So if Shavkat Rachmanov tries to keep standing with him, will that work out for him? I don't know. But Shavkat Rachmanov is a very dangerous fighter. He has knockout power, and he's a skilled grappler as well. There's a reason everybody's so high on him. So I think this will kind of be a good litmus test for both of these guys. And then opening up the pay-per-view, Vicente Luque against Ian Machado Gary. Uh, we have Josh Emmett against uh, Giga Chikadze. Dustin Jacoby against Alonzo Menafield and uh, Cody Garbrandt will be fighting Brian Kelleher on this card. Um, this, this is a very good show next month. Yeah, I'm really excited for this one. Honestly, the main event with Leon Edwards and Colby Covington is one of the less interesting fights on this one. Not that it's a bad fight, just Covington hasn't exactly been the most active fighter in recent years. I think if you... He hasn't fought since the Masvidal fight, like literally yeah. like March of last year. It's... um. You know, you can understand why he is uh, leapfrogging others, but I mean, if you're Bilal Muhammad, um, you just have to be furious that you're you're being overlooked for for Colby Covington. But um, 
it, it's still, it, it's a very stacked card for that. And also, um, announced or well confirmed this week was their return to Toronto in January for UFC 297. And they announced a bunch of fights on the card tonight, um, that had not previously been official, uh, from the UFC, but the card is headlined by Sean Strickland against Drickus Duplessis for the middleweight title. The title fight that Eric has been hitting me up for months that he wants, Raquel Pennington against Maria Bueno Silva for the Women's Bantamweight Championship, the vacant Women's Bantamweight Championship. Uh, both of those title fights are absolutely brutal. Charles Jordan against Sean Woodson, uh, Neil Magny against Mike Malott, and then uh, added this week, we are going to get uh, Jan Blahovich against Alexander Rockich, which could... uh send either guy into a, a title fight. And Dominic Reyes against Carlos Ulberg also added to this show. Arnold Allen against Movsar Ivloev. So a, a nice card that is forming for Toronto, I would say, in January. You don't you don't like Strickland and Duplessis? No, I think that I, I don't find either of them to be terribly interesting as fighters. Or and I find them both to be aggravating personalities as well. well so that just kind of adds to it. Well we'll get Sean Strickland fighting in Canada, so that should be uh, uh the anyway. enemies of freedom, Canada. That's right. Uh, are you going to be going to this card, Eric? No, unfortunately, I will not be going to this card. No, it's not. A, Marina Bueno Silva is not going to bring Eric down from uh, the 705. Uh, I, I'm a busy guy on weekends these days. It's just, it, it isn't happening. It, it was in the plans beforehand, but just uh, not anymore. I, I feel bad for everyone in Toronto, though, given the fact that <laughs> the the uh, targeted headliner was Alexander Volkanovsky. Uh, uh, things didn't quite work out. Yeah, they decided, you know, that that's too short of a comeback uh after losing to Islam. We'll we'll put you off by 4 weeks and then then you can come back. All better. Everywhere. That's how concussions work. Well, it is uh the conclusion of our UFC review, which means we are required to take a super chat from Brandon from New Jersey. Are you ready for it, Eric? Yeah, uh, yeah, sure. Hit me. Did you know that Eric Marcotte is a fan of General Hospital? Eric paints a grim picture of life in Sudbury. It was picturesque in a Leroy Neiman painting, Rocky Films. Am I off base or on third base? I don't know any of what he is talking about here, nor is this even comprehensible uh, unless you can decipher Eric. I don't know uh, who Leroy Neiman is, to be honest. I've never seen General Hospital uh, painting Rocky films. Uh, I assume he's talking about like that painting at the end of Rocky Three, or him and Apollo punch each other at the same time and starts playing the eye of the tiger. It's fantastic. Don't know how that ties into the rest of this. I'm, I'm sorry, Brandon. Too much is going on. I'm too ignorant to, to your wisdom. Sunday morning, Brandon is, uh, it's a lot on all of us, but we thank you as always, Brandon, for, for the, hey, uh, the super he, had, chat. he had a late night watching the DDT show. That's right. We had the, we had the DDT show. Uh, wasn't, uh, James Tony fighting last night? <laughs> I, I heard that. I, I don't know if I believed it when I heard it, but now that you've said it, I'm starting to believe it actually happened. I'm not intrigued to, uh, to investigate to, <laughs> to find out, but yeah, I believe uh, James Tony was in action at the age of, uh, like 59 uh, of some sort. Anyway, that is going to wrap things up. We're back next month after UFC 296. So you can, uh, check things out then. And, uh, Eric, we, uh, we will sign off any parting words on UFC 295. Ah, I wish I had something, but I have absolutely nothing. I've been awake a long time. Eric Marcotte, everyone, the best in the business. We'll chat with you next month, and that wraps up our UFC 295 review.